Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. You can check our website for all the latest commentary and analysis, and it's also where you can find details of our events in person and online, including on November 19th, Neil Stevenson in conversation with Francis Fukuyama on Neil's new book, Termination Shock. Coming up on the show today, Fiona Hill, former senior director for Europe and Russia on the National Security Council in the Trump administration, a senior fellow at Brookings and author of the new book, There Is Nothing For You Here, Finding Opportunity in the 21st Century. Uh, Fiona, welcome to Bookstack. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So congratulations on the new book. I mean, we, we had your old boss, General McMaster, on the show a few weeks ago, and he joked that he hadn't told the story that everyone wanted him to tell in his book. Uh, but you definitely have. This book gives us chapter and verse on life inside the Trump administration. Uh, and I, I guess it's fair to say that uh, in many ways you're not the former president's biggest fan. No, um, unfortunately, that... Um uh, I suppose does uh, come out in the book and I was agnostic when I went in um, I have to stress uh, into the administration I mean I just knew what everybody else knew about uh, Donald Trump I um, hadn't been connected in any way with the campaign I've certainly not been connected with uh, Republican politics I've only uh, ever had jobs that were professional uh, based on expertise non-political non-partisan jobs in uh, the uh, US government previously under George W Bush and also under Barack Obama at the uh, National Intelligence Council and I came in you know preparing to give him sort of the benefit of the doubt on a whole host of issues including Russia um, you know I want to stress which was my area of expertise my concerns were about the national security uh, aspects um, of the 2016 presidential campaign when the Russian security services under the clear direction of the Kremlin you know, launched a rather sophisticated multi-pronged attack on uh, the uh, presidential election. And I was really worried about wanting to do something about this. I kind of thought that um, you know, that would uh, focus the minds of Trump and other people around him, the national security risks. And it was that experience of finding out that that was not the case and that everybody was playing their own private personal games that really, you know, soured me on the whole enterprise and shocked me as well, to be honest. I mean, I came out of the administration extraordinarily worried about the state of affairs in US domestic politics and very worried about the um, Trump effect on the Republican Party and on, um, you know, kind of the larger political life in the United States. So it was really watching it at first hand and experiencing it alongside General McMaster, Ambassador Bolton, and you know many other um, officials, and you know kind of just watching everything in action, that uh, you know basically propelled me towards uh, you know the views that I that I certainly have now. Yeah, it's interesting that I mean you worked with General McMaster and with John Bolton, as you say. I mean they they both come out of the book quite well. Neither McMaster nor Bolton behaved in anything but an entirely straightforward and professional manner. You say. That's correct. And I mean, most of the people around me, that was the case. Cabinet members, detailees, political appointees. It was really just the atmosphere within the West Wing itself and the immediate entourage of um, President Trump uh, that was the most uh, troubling. And then the impact that he had then on the sort of Congressional Republican Party. And again, I am not a partisan person. I'm not a member of a political party. I'm an observer, you know, in many respects of this uh, political interplay. But, you know, I'm a very 
you know, um, astute observer of politics in Europe and certainly in Russia and elsewhere. And I was shocked at the parallels of some of the kind of worst politics I've seen in other places. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it is interesting on Donald Trump himself. I mean, you really don't pull your punches uh, in the book. Trump was selfish to his core, you say, and had the most fragile ego I'd encountered. Uh, he demanded constant adulation. He did. I mean, these are just statements of fact. And look, I'd written a book uh, prior to this on Vladimir Putin with a colleague, uh, Brookings Clifford Gaddy. Um, two editions of this. I've spent you know twenty odd years looking at Putin, and you know prior to that, doing an awful lot of work on um, Europe, uh, European politics, European uh, leadership, and I was you know completely shocked by Trump's behaviour. I mean, during the campaign. I I honestly thought that all of this was just showmanship for the campaign. And then I discovered, you know, when it was up front and I was, you know, there in his presence, there was little difference between the public and private persona. I also expected him, as he said, to sort of step up to the plate and be more presidential. And I mean, he was not. I mean, it, it it is interesting because, I mean, you you make it clear that this is not just about personality. I mean, clearly this is somebody who you did not like on a personal level. But but you make the point that, that the president's vanity and fragile self-esteem, you say, were a liability to himself and the country. They were a clear security risk. Uh, and, and then you go on to talk about how it's not just a, a question of the Russians being able to exploit and manipulate him. Even Twitter followers on the street seem to be able to influence him. So you know, your, your point there that, that you make very strongly is that in many ways it didn't need to be foreign intelligence services that uh, the, the everyday person on the street could influence the president. Absolutely. I mean, that was the real risk. And look, on the personal side of things, I'm, you know, kind of a woman now in my late 50s. I really did not like at all the misogyny and the sexism, but it's not like I've never experienced that before as I lay out in the book. I come from a very, you know, macho, <clears throat> sexist, misogynistic environment back in the UK, you know, growing up in the 60s, 70s and 80s there. It's not like I've never experienced this before. I just didn't expect it, let's say, of an American president, <clears throat> particularly when they came into office in this sort of day and age. But on the personal side, he's not a cartoon character. And I want to be very, you know, kind of clear here. I don't have a particular personal antipathy on a personal aspect about this. There's nothing personal um, about my feelings towards him. They're not visceral they're basically objective and viewed on my observations of him as the president of the United States at a very critical time. It's the same with Putin. I don't feel kind of any personal antipathy or affinity, you know, one way or another. It's you know, just looking up these people in the leadership context. I mean, like you yourself have done, you know, in writing um, historical books about Thatcher, Reagan, you know, Kissinger, you know, you, you look at people in the context in which they are and try to give um, an objective assessment. And I didn't come to that conclusion, um, you know, on my own either, because everyone around me to varying degrees was shocked, disturbed. And, you know, this is even people who had supported the president, I have to tell you, because I worked with an awful lot of people who had been affiliated with the campaign and uh, people who had come on board because they certainly thought that he was going to, you know, shake things up in a way that could be positive and implement new policies. And they themselves were either shocked or frustrated in, in many respects by the lack of discipline and the way that he would, you know, kind of throw things out of the window and the risks and the vulnerabilities uh, because of the way that he would indulge his own personal predilections rather than, you know, putting the country's uh, political uh, positions first and foremost. I mean, obviously, I don't name a lot of people in the book. Um, and, you know, you mentioned, you know, General McMaster and others who were always extraordinarily careful, you know, given their role there. Um, but, um, 
you know, this was really the sum of a whole period of being able to observe someone in um, close context, even if he paid very little attention to me personally and to watch what he was doing. And this is also very much, you know, uh, a section of the book. Because the whole book is not about President Trump, I just want to stress here. It's putting him in context. And I take, you know, my citizenship of the United States very seriously. I came here in 1989. I've been a citizen since 2002. I wanted to serve the country. And I kind of expected that other people did too. And President Trump did not want to serve the country. And I think that just needs to be stressed for people. I suppose, I suppose the difference is between your academic self or somebody like me when I'm writing about, as you say, Reagan and Thatcher, uh, is that you know I'm actually not there in the room at the time. You're really good in the book, actually, at those kind of stomach-churning moments when the when everybody's eyes turn on you, whether, whether it was when you were giving testimony uh, before the Intelligence Committee uh, in Congress, or those moments in in the Oval Office, including when uh, you, you 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 have this brilliant but terrible moment uh, in the book where the where the president uh, mistakes you for a typist, and everyone's looking at you, and he sends you out to type up some notes, and you you talk quite frankly about the humiliation that you felt uh, in that moment. So I, I guess my point is that when you're actually in the arena as you've been, it gives you an, a completely different sense of what's going on, and that ability to influence events. Yeah, and I mean, I think that that's why it's really incumbent upon you, um, or one, um, you know, to, to bear witness to that and to, you know, lay it out as how things happened. When you're in a position like that and everybody wants to know how the situation unfolded, then, you know, I think it's incumbent upon you to try to give the best uh, and most accurate depiction that you can. And look, as I also lay out in the book, and this is why I wanted to put the whole experience in context, I've been there so many times before. As a woman, you know, particularly younger woman at different points in my career, I've been mistaken for pretty much everything you can think about in different contexts. And I lay some of that out in the book as well. So let's just say I was well prepared for that moment. I mean, I was still shocked by it, <laughs> you know, because I wasn't quite expecting it. And I was, wasn't quite expecting just, you know, the rather crude way in which the president addressed me either. Because again, this is the president of the United States, and I have been in the presence of other presidents and and world leaders, you know, from other countries as well, many times. Although, as it as it turns out in the book, the president saying to you, "Hey, darling," is one of the more polite things. One of the the yes. shock one of one of the shocks in the book is, um, and you know, I'm sorry even to repeat this actually, that uh, where you you became aware that people were referring to you as the Russia bitch uh, in the White House. Now, I mean, that kind of bullying must have been must be very very difficult to deal with, especially actually when you're working in that kind of high pressured, really central environment. Well, again, um, you know, as I describe in the book, I grew up in a you know, fairly rough period in uh, UK um, history and I went to a pretty rough school in a, you know, an area that was very much down its luck. I have been bullied far worse than that. But you don't expect what happens to you in you know, the UK equivalent of middle school to be transferred into the West Wing. So I was, yes, I was well prepared, been there, done that. Thank you very much. Much worse happened. Far more terrible things being said about me to my face, I have to say, rather than behind my back, as a lot of this has been done. And and by the way, I'm being excoriated right now as we speak on the internet by all kinds of trolls, often anonymous, saying terrible things about me, you know, because of the book and because I've been, you know, sticking my neck out on, you know, many of these issues. But you don't expect that in the 
ultimate pinnacle of professionalism. At least that's where you think you are in the executive branch of uh, the United States government. So that's the shocking aspect of it. But I've had plenty of those experiences all the way along the way. But, you know, again, I think it's important to point out that people are behaving like that in that kind of environment. They're not thinking about policy. They're not thinking about national security. They're just thinking about these sort of middle school playground kind of games and taunts for people. Yes, yeah, it's, it's interesting the the Twitter stuff. I mean, you you talk about that in the book, and there there are so many outlandish conspiracy theories that you're a mole. Whether it's is it what is it British intelligence, Russian intelligence? Is yeah, it the it's Democrats? It's, it's a it's a matter of <laughs> matter of taste as to as to as to which particular conspiracy that uh, you're quote playing a long game of subversion. I mean, how do you cope with all of that stuff? And you know, I, I mean, as you say, it, it wasn't just when you were uh, when you were uh, testifying in front of the House Intelligence Committee, it's something that's been pretty much ongoing for you. Well, I try to treat it um, as a way about kind of a one step removed in an objective fashion. As okay, what's this telling me about what's happening in the moment? You know, when I was a kid and I was reading history books and you know I was trying to sort of understand big events and you know when I was a college student and um, you know reading about things, I thought, well, what would it be like to be in those situations? How would it feel? And now I know, <laughs> you know, I've always been quite fascinated by how conspiracy theories take root because, you know, very early on when I was studying Russian history, you'd find out how these rumours and you know, these sort of myths would grow up and they would spark off insurgencies, rebellions and, and, and feed into the revolution. I mean, you know, the whole stories about Rasputin, for example, um, and uh, the, the, the Russian Tsar and his uh, family, you know, at the end of the Romanov dynasty. Oh, there'd be these uprisings, peasants' revolts all over the place, including in British history. And you think, well, how did that cut triggered off? And now I know, because now I'm living in the midst of uh, being the subject of one of these conspiracy theories. So on you know, the one hand, it's obviously pretty disturbing, realising that this is you who is being mythologised and turned into whatever it is for any occasion. But it's also a fascinating opportunity to see the anatomy of conspiracy theories and disinformation, deliberate deployment of information for political purposes and see how they unfold. I'd often worried, wondered about, you know, the Stalin era in Russia. I mean, certainly I hope that's not where we're heading and all of us will be, and myself included, off to the gulag. But, you know, you can see how people would denounce um, you know, their neighbour, they wanted their neighbour's flat, their neighbour's wife, their neighbour's wife's coat, you know, you name it. And there would be all these denunciation. I've seen some of that, you know, stuff from the archives. And now I'm sort of seeing it happen in real time on the internet. And why are people doing all of this? That's also what's fascinating, you know, because <clears throat> for some it's a continuation of their middle school, you know, high school days and just the bullying. Maybe they were the subject of bullying. Now they're getting their own revenge. You know, for others, they can't make sense of random facts, chance coincidence, complexity, rapid change. And they're trying to kind of find an explanation for it. I mean, there are all kinds of reasons for why this is happening. And, you know, on that, that kind of level, I find it fascinating and it's actually a unique opportunity to study it. And I'm thinking myself about writing more about this at a, you know, at a, a suitable time. And of course, I mean, some of the impulses behind Donald Trump's election victory in 2016 are things that you talk about from your own background in in County Durham. That 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 sense of frustration that uh, somehow society, especially elite society, uh, is just left left whole communities behind. Yeah, I mean, I totally get it. I mean, you know, when I was, and I think, you know, this kind of comes out somewhat in the book, <clears throat> we were all convinced that Margaret Thatcher, <laughs> singularly, 
was the architectress of our demise, really. I mean, obviously, you know, later on, I mean, I am quite hard on her in the book because of just, you know, the view of destruction of communities, which were really the, uh, you know, the mutual support, the vital support mechanism for people like me and others. You know, we all helped each other out. We didn't want to rely on the state, actually. <laughs> we wanted to rely on our own community to sort of support us and, you know, to push us forward. <clears throat> but we were convinced... Um, it was only until again later when I did more research myself and you know started uh, studying more larger political economic trends that I realised that uh, Margaret Thatcher was not as we were convinced uh, the, the the sole reason for everything that was happening. But you know we we would you know take part in uh, protests and all the the music of the time, the popular culture was infused with this antagonism towards Margaret Thatcher. And I'm sure we were all kind of feeding into these sort of images and myths uh, about the woman herself and what she thought and, you know, not really understanding the person. And a lot later I started reading, you know, a lot more biographies about um, Margaret Thatcher, reading more books about, you know, the kind of the impetus to... Uh, basically privatise what had been a nationalised economy after World War II. And I had a lot more empathy for and more understanding. But I certainly didn't have it in the moment in the 1980s. Yeah, and so it's, I suppose it's worth pointing out that Bishop Auckland, where you come from, now has a, a Conservative MP, which I, I think your dad probably would have found somewhat surprising, to say the least. Yeah, although my mother... Um, uh, put a finger exactly on, you know, why that was the case, you know, during the election 2019, she said that that MP, uh, Deanna Davison, who's, you know, very young, actually, I think she's still under 30, had uh, basically walked around, you know, going door to door, old fashioned grassroots campaigning and talked to people and seemed real and seemed to know where she was, which was you know, quite different from the outgoing Labour MP who'd made multiple mistakes when she first appeared in County Durham, Bishop Orc, and make it clear that she was, you know, kind of coming in, just sort of parachuting in from, uh, you know, kind of into a safe seat and just more looking for her larger you know political career in uh, Westminster and although she'd sort of appear you know at various times at um, you know various kind of public facilities like my mum's community church for example but um, she never made a connection with people and she just never felt like uh, you know she really cared about um, you know the, the the larger population where that was the difference um, with uh, Deanna Davison. And it's, it's interesting because you were, when you were on the NSC, you were part of the team that was preparing for Donald Trump's visit uh, to the UK. I mean, that, that, that must have been quite something for you with it being the place of your birth, engaging with the UK government, having achieved such an eminent position in the White House. Well, it was slightly surreal, I have to say that. Um, I mean, there were actually a lot of other people, you know, behind the scenes in um, the US government. I mean, given the fact that the US is, you know, still... A largely a, a country that's built up on waves of uh, immigration, um, who you know also were from other different European backgrounds and who had the same feeling when you know you'd meet with the leadership and counterparts of you know their country of origin too. So yes, it was definitely a surreal feeling. But you know, I had been by this time in the United States for you know about thirty years, more time than I had actually lived in uh, the United Kingdom, and so. Obviously, it gave me a special vantage point, but there's still, you know, some degrees of separation there that were important. And I did feel, you know, however, that it was useful in terms of being able to smooth over, um, let's just say, some issues that would have, could have been potentially explosive. Because I, I did manage to, you know, by working with the British counterparts, head off, you know, some pretty um, potentially explosive interactions that, um, you know, could have uh, really marred the visit because the visit wasn't just about Trump 
meeting with the Queen, which was his focal point. But it's really about that long-standing US-UK relationship that was getting jeopardised quite frequently by you know Trump's propensity for picking fights with people. But there's there's almost a, a sliding doors kind of moment to it. I mean, when you when you're there, the UK National Security Advisor's Mark Sedwell, who uh, went to a, a, a state school, what in the United States we'd call a public school uh, right. in the US, just like you did. He also went to St Andrews University, yes, he was like, a year like ahead you of me did. And I knew him. Yeah. So, th- so there's there's, a, there's even somebody, one of the the Prime Minister, uh, what, Theresa May's chief of uh, joint chiefs of staff, is is also called Fiona Hill. So, so That's th- right. th- there's, there's almost a, a sense. That if you had stayed in the UK, this potentially is you could have been on the other side of that uh, of of those of those visits. And uh, as I say, it it is almost like sliding doors moments. It's very strange for the other Fiona Hill, Fiona McLeod Hill, because she gets all the vitriol directed at me <laughs> on uh, Twitter. So I feel very badly about this, actually. And there was a wonderful moment of um, uh, exactly that that point of not sure which was the real Fiona Hill. Um, in some documents because she had been part of uh, Theresa May's visit to the White House in March of 2017, which was just before I started at the National Security Council. And Theresa May was the first major state visit. And they weren't very good at taking notes at that particular point um, and writing them up from the visits. And so there wasn't a proper record, interestingly enough, from uh, the discussion. And there was on the list of participants uh, Fiona Hill, and so the executive secretariat came to me and said, do you still have notes from the uh, the, the May visit? Because uh, they're not properly written up. And I said, well, that wasn't me. <laughs> and then I thought, should I just write to the other Fiona Hill and see if she has some notes? <laughs> But this, I mean, this, this kind of stuff is great for uh, for you as a historian because it, it you know it, make, it makes you understand how these kind of mistakes, how these kind of errors creep into the uh, creep into the historical record. Absolutely right. I mean, you you do start to wonder now. I, I've I've got a really uh, new appreciation for so many um, issues of of statecraft here that. Um, Random chance, um, you know, the the, the fact that uh, sometimes things go awry or don't go awry just by the intervention of a, an individual in some kind of sometimes random way, sometimes a purposeful way. Timing, you know, often is, is, the, is an issue and sometimes timing gets thrown off and things don't happen, you know, because of other unrelated events. There's just so many things that I now realise factor in that I probably didn't fully appreciate in the past. I mean, you you say in the book that uh, events like that visit and 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 the, the the many achievements that you'd had helped you to get over any sense of imposter syndrome uh, that you might have. But it is interesting that you then come back and you that you say for uh, President Trump and for his inner circle, I was an actual imposter. Yes, because I wasn't part of the campaign. I obviously wasn't part of the Republican Party apparatus either who'd been brought forward. I had been, um, and again, this is another of those unusual quirks, uh, contrary to all of the stuff out on, you know, strange Twitter sphere. I was actually asked to join the administration by two of the people on Trump's campaign, uh, General Flynn, who had left um before I even you know got into the position, and Katie McFarland, both the National Security Advisor and the Deputy National Security Advisor, both who knew me previously and knew of my work on Russia and Putin. And I actually worked with General Flynn when I was in the National Intelligence Council. He was my counterpart on the Chairman's Office for the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And they were the people who wanted to bring me on board. 
And so it doesn't that doesn't really kind of fit with conspiracy theories. So people, you know, tend to leave that one alone because I don't think they can quite figure that out. Um, because I'm not political, not partisan, and you know, again, it was just based on my professional work on Russia and Putin and on Europe, and they really wanted you know someone who they thought, you know, given my style and the things I'd, I'd uh, written, I'd be able to sit down with um, President Trump and just explain to him, you know, what Putin was like and what we had to be worried about. But of course, not having them to introduce me in a meaningful way meant that I did become this imposter because I didn't have that connection to people who could vouch for me. And although Katie McFarlane was still there when I got into the um, the, the National Security Council, she was on her way out being moved off um, by, you know, all the machinations and the infighting, you know, kind of around the president. And she tried on a couple of occasions to introduce me. It failed miserably because there was never a good moment and we never got to have that sit down ever. And so, you know, for Trump, I was just this random person who, I mean, he thinks now I worked with Bolton, somehow came on with Bolton, or I was just sort of a random person who sort of appeared from nowhere. He didn't understand who I was and didn't really care to find out. I mean, it, it, it is interesting reading the book that, that there never really seems to be a moment where you are in strategic sympathy with the president and, and with the kind of broader foreign policy aims of the uh, administration, which I, I guess begs the question, what, why did you join uh, well, in the first, I was first place? on um, Russia um, in a, uh, but a more nuanced way. So Trump really wanted, and I knew this right from the beginning, to have a major arms control deal with the Russians. People miss this completely, that he was very serious. When he talked about having a deal with the Russians, of course, everybody thinks it's something nefarious, you know, depending on their perspective, because of what had happened in 2016. And he wanted to sit down with Putin and wrap up the um, arms control negotiations from the 1980s. He wanted that ultimate elusive big arms control deal that covered everything. And, and actually, you, you, intermediate. You, you make the point in the book that, you know, your judgment is that he's very much a man rooted in the 1980s. Correct. And I started studying Russian myself in the 1980s against the backdrop of the same things that worried him. The Euro missile crisis, the war scares of the 1980s. You know, the SS-20 Pershing missile intermediate nuclear forces standoff that resulted in Reagan and Gorbachev signing the INF Treaty in 1987. In fact, the year and the very time when I arrived in the Soviet Union as a student, I decided to study Russian against that backdrop because I was so paranoid about nuclear war like everybody else in my generation. And I thought I could be an interpreter maybe. You know, for big arms control talks, either for the UK or but the UN, you know, something like that's, you know, what I thought I might do, or maybe a junior diplomat. I never anticipated that I'd end up where I was. And Trump also wanted to improve, let's put aside all the other rhetoric and all the other stuff that he was doing, the relationship with the Russians. I wanted to do that too, take off the edge of this confrontation. I mean, I'm not naive about it. I certainly didn't want to appease them, but I wanted to kind of find a way of uh, preventing us from just going from one crisis to the other. And I do think that if, you know, we hadn't had this, the Russians had no idea really about what a mess they had made in uh, 2016 with the intervention. Um, I mean, they got what they wanted in terms of chaos, a huge stain on whoever was going to be the president. They were going after Hillary Clinton, you know, and trying to pump up uh, Trump, but not thinking that he would win. But whoever it was who became a winner, they wanted to have that big 
cloud over them. They wanted to delegitimize the electoral process. They wanted, you know, Americans to feel like they felt they'd been made to feel that their whole process and political process was illegitimate. They wanted their revenge on us for, in their, uh, in their view, for years of meddling and uh, years of talking them down. They wanted to say, who's worse now, you know, us versus them. There was just so much going on there in the Russian um, approach to uh, 2016. But then when they ended up with the Trump presidency and all this just vitriol and chaos in our domestic politics over their intervention, they were a bit shocked because then those deals that they wanted to have themselves, they also wanted an arms control deal, a new one uh, to replace INF and New Start. And they also wanted an improvement in the relationship to a point because I think they still need that confrontation there for their own role in the world. They couldn't get anything because we were just so angry with them and the whole system was in um, in chaos. And Trump himself couldn't sit down with Putin, as he hoped and they hoped, to basically put the re uh, relationship on another track. And so that was a huge tragedy. And I had genuinely, you know, kind of gone into the administration, worried about the national security aspects, trying to figure out how we could stop this from happening again. And in the hope that, you know, we might be able to somewhat stabilise that relationship. Of course, that's not what happened, but I thought it was worth trying. I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting that there seem to be two different kinds of narratives on the, the Trump administration going on at the moment, that there's the political one, which is obviously toxic. Um, and, and then there are foreign policy commentators who across the board, actually, by, in a bipartisan way, can see some successes in the Trump foreign policy, that the pushback on China, use of sanctions against Russia, pursuit of peace in the Middle East, no new wars. So uh, do you think that there are things that you can be proud about from your time in the White House. Absolutely. Um, you know, if you um, take all of uh, you know, the big drama away, there's a lot of continuity in American um, foreign policy from president to president, and that was exactly the case. Uh, I also think he deserves much more credit than he's got. But I mean, I didn't want the book to be about foreign policy, so I didn't write about a lot of this for North Korea and handling Kim Jong-un. Because as I was coming in uh, to the um, administration, there was a lot of fear that uh, Kim was going to launch a missile against some American territorial target, Guam, you know, somewhere. Remember there was the whole missile, um, mistaken missile alarm uh, for Hawaii. And I think it was, the, was it that summer of 2017? where there was a, uh, a warning um, signal that had been erroneously uh, sent out warning everyone in Hawaii that we were going to be struck by a missile. And my brother and sister-in-law happened to be in Hawaii at the time on vacation. And it was pretty awful. I mean, they actually thought that they were going to die. They were out watching dolphins. They thought, oh, well, this is where I'm going. I'm going to be obliterated, you know, watching these dolphins quick, have a beer, you know, kind of thing. They just told about the terrifying moments when they actually thought they were going to be hit by a missile strike from North Korea. So there's this whole... Um, you know, period of great tension. And Trump himself talks about this and uh, about how Obama warned him about it. And he took it on seriously. And although, you know, the people would be very um, dismissive of his um, efforts to really get a serious arms control negotiation, he does step away at the end from when um, Kim Jong-un tried to pull a fast one on the arms control. He wasn't just going to sign any old deal. And, you know, he's not wrong that, you know, people within his own circle did try to you know, pull him back when he was, you know, moving forward on this because there was an awful lot of um, opposition behind the scenes to him courting Kim Jong-un as he did. But, you know, he genuinely thought he was heading off a disaster here because for him, 
a nuclear exchange is the greatest catastrophe. He constantly talked about that. And Iran, North Korea and Russia were all tied together. He wanted to head off uh, any kind of nuclear confrontation. And he thought he was doing that also by pulling out of the Iran agreement because he uh, was very worried about the sunset clause. Uh, in other words, you know, the kind of how quickly that Iran would be able to get a missile and the fact that the uh, Iranians were still working on intercontinental ballistic missiles, uh, or, you know, or more immediate range uh, ballistic missiles as well, I think, most most likely. So there was um, a unity of um, of issues there. And I do think, you know, if we stood back from the domestic politics, but it's hard to you know put that one side that there would be an awful lot more out of his foreign policy. And I think the Biden administration has picked up on a lot of it, honestly. Yeah, I mean, that's that's one of the interesting things, isn't it? That that quite a lot of the broad outlines of Trump's strategy do seem to have been accepted by the Biden administration, not least, yeah, not but, least on China. Right, because, I mean, they made sense. I mean, he was like a giant wrecking ball on many issues, <clears throat> but also putting a really harsh spotlight on things that had to be addressed and that people were not addressing. He would call things out. And I think, you know, in many respects, it's a great tragedy um, of his presidency because what he did on the domestic front was so unbelievably damaging in his own person. If he'd been, you know, more disciplined, he hadn't had some of these, you know, predilections, he hadn't had that just incredibly vulnerable ego. I've never met anyone so fragile in my life, honestly. I was shocked. I mean, I'm shocked, shocked that he's made it, you know, as far as he has in his life, just generally, uh, because of that acute vulnerability. But, you know, basically, his a lot of his instincts were spot on. So again, it's tragic. Uh, it's kind of, you know, Shakespeare would have a field day, no doubt, with Donald Trump, <laughs> if he was still around, you know, writing plays. So if you, uh, having, having been through everything that you've been through, would you, would you go back in again if you were, if you were asked into... Back in, in 2016, absolutely. I would not, you know, kind of for a second Trump turn because I think that this, this is going to, um, if it happens, ruin the country. And what about in the, in the future? Back into government? Yeah. I'm, uh, I have to say, you know, completely uh, and utterly jaded with um, executive branch politics. I'm deeply disappointed, you know, by the way that things are playing out in uh, the uh, political parties in the United States and, you know, the, the lack of um, attention to the country overall, playing partisan games, the fact that people identify themselves as Democrat, you know, Republican rather than an American. You know, I talk to people on, you know, kind of both sides of, you know, of the aisle, so to speak, who just can't abide the thought of, you know, coming to terms with the other... Uh, I don't think that that's kind of, you know, the, the way to go, uh, certainly for myself. Um, you know, I'm, again, not a partisan. I'm a completely independent and affiliated person. I, I, don't, I can't even place myself really on the ideological spectrum here. And I really feel that we need to mobilize on the societal level now to really kind of get things done in the United States. We need public-private partnerships, something to kind of give a demonstration effect to people in politics now that they you know, really need to... They really need to step up to the plate here, that American democracy is at risk. And certainly, I mean, the levels of inequality in the United States, I, given, you know, my long, you know, research in, uh, in other settings in Europe, I mean, this is this is not supportable for the, by the political system for a long period of time. Only a 7% chance in the United States for someone from the bottom quintile to get to the top quintile. That whole idea of opportunity um, has just has just been lost. And that was the driving force of America. It's the driving force of politics to give people the sense that everyone has a chance you know, to move forward in some fashion in their lives. And that's gone. 
Still, the little girl in Bishop Auckland would have been amazed to have seen herself sitting in the Oval Office, wouldn't she? Yes, but, you know, another reason for writing the book was to explain how it happened. I mean, I know I didn't do it on my own. Uh, I had an enormous amount of help and mentorship. A lot of it was lucky timing and lucky breaks. Um, I graduated all the way, you know, from university and um, Harvard graduate school with no debt whatsoever. Not, not, not a cent. And at every time I had, um, you know, uh, fantastic mentorship, really, you know, people helping me out and opening doors. Uh, you know, I, I really think of life as a team sport. And what upsets me is that the kind of my kind of, you know, success is not replicable, you know, for others as it should be. Yet, I mean, there were an awful lot of people I worked with in the United States government who came from very similar backgrounds. But it's harder now for the people of my daughter's generation, people, you know, just a generation, again, I'm in my late 50s, but younger than me, people who were born in the 80s, you know, 90s and onwards, to make those same moves. And I think, you know, if we had that, you know, more generalised opportunity, rather than just for a few, me, J.D. Vance, you know, Tara Westover, have written books about this, you know, and, and others, you know, who we can kind of point to. And it's still in the private sector, you do see an awful lot of, you know, these kinds of stories. But if we had more of this, I think people would feel a bit more of a connection, you know, to uh, American politics. We wouldn't have this sort of polarisation because people would see themselves reflected and see a pathway. Instead, they see a conspiracy. They see that there are elites who are out of touch, and I've been accused of being one of them. Another reason you know, for writing this book, saying hello, anything but, you know, who keep everything for themselves and are denying people, you know, their opportunity. So the book is There Is Nothing For You Here, Finding Opportunity in the 21st Century. It's written by my guest, Fiona Hill, and published by Mariner Books. But for now, Fiona, congratulations again on the book, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thank you so much, Richard. It's been a pleasure. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Damien Marusic. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.